Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Trey Eidecker, who is a professor of medicine, bioengineering, and computer science at the University of California, San Diego. He directs the National Resource for Network Biology and the Cancer Cell Map and Psychiatric Cell Map Initiatives. Welcome, Trey. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, I have a number of your papers, at least I have the titles of them. I haven't read them. Um, but they're all extremely interesting topics. Uh, as I mentioned, I have done some work in AI, uh, but away from life sciences, more into economics and business. Uh, but these topics are of, of real interest to me. So I think there is sort of a two or three buckets of papers here, but I want to start with a multi-scale map of self-structured fusing protein images and interactions. So this is sort of the hardware of the cell, right? I mean, it seems like a very, very complex machinery <laughs> once you go in there. That's that's right. And so this is everything in biology is referred to often as either structure or function. And so I can see you you understand, Gil. If this is the hardware, the structure of the of the cell. um that we're trying to get at in a systematic way using a combination of data and machine learning. And so what do you mean by a multi-scale map? What would be the output of this process? Well, I, I actually to me those are two distinct questions or two two different questions they're linked of course. What is it meant when we say you know what what do we mean by multi-scale and then what is the actual output how do we represent the model and visualize the model and and, and so so let me just start with what do we mean by multi-scale um back to your analogy here of the machine it's a very complex machine when we consider a human cell um some people think in terms of the complexity of the internal workings of a cell 
it's on the same order of, of complexity as the complexity of a brain, right? You can think really, in fact, there's a wonderful book written by Dennis Bray about a decade ago, um, which I think the title of the book is Wetware. Uh, and, and the idea is, is that the behavior of cells is, is extraordinarily complex and exhibits what might be considered intelligent behavior. Right. Uh, and, and so so the difference there is, um, between a cell and a brain, of course, is the hardware uh, uh, and maybe some of the software. But certainly the hardware is different. The hardware of a brain can be decomposed into neurons and you know banks of neurons um, that are the decision. You know, maybe the atomic processes of, you know, the brain as we like to think about the brain. Um, and then, and then, what are the you know the atoms of that processing in inside of cells? Well, they're proteins and circuits of proteins that are making those decisions, um, uh, uh, and that's what uh, uh, are in the contents of our models. Now, it's multi-scale because uh, let us think about what what are the physical scales of these machines. So um, we start at the lower reaches of scale or resolution of, of what we consider um, with individual um, uh, letters and proteins, you know, uh, genes and proteins. And if you think about what's what is an ACG or T in DNA and what's the size of this, uh, uh, you know, the, the answer is, well, about a nanometer. Somewhere in the 10 to the minus nine meters, 10 to the minus 10 meter uh, scale. Um, and, uh, of course, proteins don't act alone, you know, so genes make encode for proteins and they, you know, have the three-dimensional structure. Those three-dimensional structures don't act alone, but they combine with other three-dimensional structures to form even bigger structures. And these are typically called protein complexes, but uh, a protein complex can be relatively small of just maybe two or three subunits, or it can have hundreds. So the size of a protein complex could be anywhere from say 10 nanometers to 100 nanometers or more, okay? An example of a very big protein complex would be something like the proteasome, which is the garbage collector of the cell. It runs around looking for uh, cell machinery, other cell machines that have lived their life and, and have, uh, are either, um, you know, just uh, older, older machines that need to be recycled or, or defective machines, misfolded machines, and so on. These are, are collected uh, by, by this garbage collection unit known as the proteasome. And the proteasome itself is a machine of dozens of different proteins. And, and so again, this is a bigger, a bigger machine. Um, and so, you, you know, when you talked about the cell as sort of this, this complex set of machines, it's, it's very hierarchical, isn't it? Because you have single proteins as the atoms, if you like, or, you know, amino acids is the atoms inside of proteins, but then proteins are the atomic units of protein complexes. But these, of course, are just the subunits, again, in a modular way of bigger and bigger machines. Um, uh, if you continue upwards in scale, you get up to organelles. So, you know, uh, collections of protein assemblies forming larger assemblies take place in organelles. And these organelles are maybe of the size, say, one micron. So 10 to the minus six meters in, in size. And finally, you know, organelles like the nucleus, this mitochondria, uh, the energy factories of the cell, uh, or the chloroplast if it's a plant, um, 
you know, the, the lysosome. These are all examples of organelles at a round plus or minus the micron level. And, and then finally, those are within cells. Uh, and the cell itself is, is uh, the very highest resolution we consider in this paper you read. Uh, we're really trying to model one cell. And how, how big is a cell? Well, for humans, about 10 microns, so 10 to the minus 5 meter. So, so multi-scale, uh, we're talking 10 to the minus 10 or 10 to the minus 9 meters, which would be a change in a nucleic acid or an or a, a amino acid of a protein. You get a muta you know, mutations and um, nucleotide you know, genome variation that makes us who we are. These are events at the level of 10 to the minus 9 meters. And then the cell itself is 10 to the minus 5 meters in size. And so we have to then span these five orders of, of, of magnitude. Okay, so that's, that's the multi-scale. Now, I haven't yeah. yet really answered the full question, which is how do we represent that? And we yeah. represent, uh, and now, but now I can say it quite quickly because uh, we, uh, everything I've just described can be represented at least abstractly as an ontology of parts in cells. And so in, in what's an ontology? Well, most people represent ontologies by graph structures. Sometimes they're trees, um, but in our case, uh, it's, it's hierarchical, um, like a hierarchical tree, but it's actually a so-called DAG, a directed acyclic graph, because you allow for reuse of smaller parts inside of multiple types of larger machines, just like, you know, when you assemble your your piece of furniture that you've just bought from Ikea, you know, you may have 46 screws of the same type and 12 of them go here, another 12 of them go in this part and so on. And so when you have that kind of repurposing of, of smaller machines um, that can be mixed and matched to make up larger ones, you no longer have a tree structure. It's a it's it's a it's formally a DAG. And most ontologies uh, respect this type of structure. Uh, so, so there are layers of objects, and 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 the objects of a layer draw from the objects below it in the hierarchy. Um, um, for so for their sort of like a blueprint, a blueprint of a cell. Um, but are we up to a point that we have some sort of a, you know? software or a combination of hardware and software product that given a cell, it can basically create that tree structure that you talk about because it's all hierarchically organized. So, so, okay, that last thing you said took me for a little bit of a loop because I, uh, I for, let's, let's first talk about function in general okay. and then you're talking about a specific kind of function, which is replicate, how does self-replication happen yeah. right uh but let's just talk about function Let, let's do something easier if it's okay to start sure, how yeah. do we how do we start because you know there's plenty of functions you know self-replication of course is at the heart of a lot of conundra <laughs> in, in, right. in both life sciences and artificial intelligence but um let's start with easier functions like so how does how does the cell decide to grow or stop dividing in response to stimuli, you know, so you can give a human cell growth factors and then all of a sudden it starts to, to proliferate like crazy, or you can starve it and or or stress the cell. And depending on the kind of stress, it'll it'll stop growing and go quiescent, 
is the term we use. Okay, so how does a cell make this decision? And there's other, many other decisions of this nature, right? That cells, um, you know, how does an immune cell, right, decide when to go crazy and attack, you know, uh, uh, you know, start defending your body from a from a foreign invading cell population, versus when does this when does an immune cell, uh, re, you know, remain quiet and and you know uh, these kinds of, of functions. So, so generally the way we functionalize this structure gets into another paper you might have in your stack, yeah. um, which relates to, we use these structures um, as the architecture for deep neural network systems um, that we use to learn function. So now imagine that we assign every component in in the cell that, that now is in our in our structural map right every every component we assign a bank of artificial neurons in a neural network okay and that bank of neurons um, uh, neurons in neural networks have states ones and zeros we typically think about the states of any one neuron as output as binary of course they're not strictly binary but we'd like to think of a of a train of ones and zeros that 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 those neurons will take on in in any given um, given some input and on the way to computing some output. Okay, so so now um, the 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 sort of special thing that we've done is instead of building deep neural networks to uh, to 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 address some input output translation problem where the neural network is itself a black box. Okay, we we um, we structure that neural network explicitly according to the hardware that we've just mapped. Okay, and we can we we can get into this, but but now what you have is is you've added functional state through the states of those artificial neurons onto every component in your hardware. Um, and then we can talk about how it's so then, and then having that formulation. Now we now we try to to make functional predictions. Um, nothing as complex as self-replication, though. We're just not there yet. But in terms of other kinds of functional predictions, when does the cell proliferate or not in response to growth cues is the main one our papers have have addressed. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting, Trey. So I want to take a bit of a detour. So, I mean, the the attractiveness of a neural network, a deep, deep uh, learning network, is that you don't actually prescribe its internal structure nor its initial conditions. But when a human goes in there and does that, would you, wouldn't you bring some initial biases into it? Wouldn't that sort of destroy the efficiency? So um, it depends how good your prior information is, I suppose, right? And um, number one, um, Number two, um, it depends how strictly you uh, constrain learning using that information. Now, in the in the first generation systems we've built, it's strict. You're essentially, I like to think about it in a very draconian way. You're you're taking your your um, otherwise very flexible deep neural network and taking groups of neurons out and literally nailing them to the cross <laughs> of some pre predetermined hierarchy, right? That you say this, I'm, I, you know, I, you know, God comes in and declares these seven <laughs> neurons are the neurons that are representing the ribosome. And these seven neurons 
are, you know, the proteasome, and these seven neurons are um, are one of the subunits, are the regulatory part of the proteasome, and these others will be the the core uh, garbage collection part of the of the proteasome, and 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 they then factor and so on. Um, if you're wrong, you're you're worried about what if you're wrong. Now, um, um, I think an opportunity moving forward is 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 to have systems that can take that information, but only under advice as advisements, um, and 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 um, are not strictly constrained. But let's talk about why it's a good idea for a second here. And and first of all, I want to suggest it's not such a crazy idea. Um, Convolutional neural networks, which of course are are the standard now in image processing and image recognition, are themselves um, built in in it's in, in, in a very analogous fashion. So so what is the prior knowledge a convolutional neural network uses? Well, it partitions a two-dimensional it assumes its input is two-dimensional, right? As opposed to a standard general neural network, which does not have any preconceived notions about the, the, the architecture of the features, right? Here we assume that the, 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 the input features have a two-dimensional array pattern. And furthermore, we assume that pixels that neighbor one another share information. And based on these two assumptions about the architecture of the features, we then um, grid the input into these these uh, you know convolutional boxes, the seven by seven box of pixels that I I will feed into my 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 first uh, uh, layer a neuron, and then of course those get get con you know through other layers of convolution combined. But again, respecting the two dimensional architecture of an image and our our preconceived notion about that, uh, you can think about our hardware. You know, we're doing the same just on the two-dimensional or three, or it's 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 you know the multi-dimensional architecture of a cell. Yeah. Right. No, it's uh, I mean, I love what you're doing here, Trey. So this is a bit of a regime change in the sense that humans have knowledge. Machines are very efficient in looking at information, large amounts of information, and potentially creating insights from that information. Now, this is, the, this is the problem on the table, I think, for artificial intelligence, which is how do you marry human knowledge, intuition, with machine power, right? I mean, in some sense, that's, that's what you're doing, right? That's exactly right. And and where does it, so so let me let me just get to, to where it has really been a big payoff so far. So the payoff is an interpretation. Right, which again gets into so one is how you marry human knowledge about our hardware architecture with with just plain learning of input output functions. Right. The other is how do you interpret very much related to your question? How do you interpret uh, the model? And in in healthcare, as compared, you know, you know, contrasting healthcare with some other disciplines in healthcare, you really have high stakes. Uh, so when the machine, it's it's not like you know a deep learning system that's predicting what movie you should watch tonight uh, on Netflix. It could be wrong, but you just wasted two hours of your life, and it was okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. The stakes are low, right? <laughs> At least it, I don't know. I mean, for me, eh, two hours, okay. Um, next, um, but but you know, if if the output is what drug should I give to this patient who is dying of cancer? 
And if I make the wrong decision, that this is, that's the final decision for this patient. I mean, these are the highest, you know, some of the highest imaginable stakes. Um, and of course, there's gradations between these two extremes. Um, so in those applications, you really need the machine to be held accountable. It's got to be trustworthy. Um, that's number one. And, and so one, one way of, of, of increasing trust, of course, is, is um, just like you would with the human, you have to be able to explain your reasons. You can't, it's simply unacceptable for a deep learning system to say, you know, sorry, kiddo, you've got six months to live and <laughs> I can't tell you why. Uh, <laughs> um, just can't do it, right? Whereas if you say, you know, I don't, I don't really know why, but I, I, I sense that you're gonna really wanna watch the movie Devil's Advocate tonight. <laughs> well, okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> Let's give it a try, right? Um, so, so explanations are somehow at the heart of, they're, they're not the only component of trustworthiness, but they're certainly, uh, they, they seem to be one of the components of trust, of a trustworthy explanation. Um, but, but the other reason why they're super required, uh, or at least helpful in, in, in the biomedical applications we think a lot about is because then you can start to, if, if you as a human understand the machine's reasoning, you now can think together with the machine on possibly even better solutions. Right. Um, or, or use that, use that knowledge in some orthogonal task that the machine wasn't, wasn't directly addressing. So for instance, if I can predict which patients will respond to a, to a cancer drug, I'll give an example, um, uh, palbociclib, Pfizer drug, um, it's a CDK4-6 inhibitor. Those are the proteins the drug inhibits. Um, it's a first line of therapy for certain types of breast cancer. Um, about roughly 30 to 50% of patients do not respond. Okay, so let's say just roughly half patients respond, half patients don't. I'm coarse graining it, I have to assure you, but nonetheless, um, could I predict which, uh, which patients are likely to respond versus not, um, given information that I've collected about that patient, which would include um, their genome sequence and any mutations that tumor has. We know that mutations cause cancer in different patterns. So are there certain patterns and mutations that, that would, would indicate that this patient will respond? And of course, there's many other types of data of, of interest for prediction. The, the full clinical record of the patient is their family history. All of these things, you know, uh, what's their height, weight, and blood pressure. All of these things would be types of inputs the machine could use as features. Um, and, and you want to predict, is, is this drug a good idea? No. Well, what about drug B? What about drug C? What about drug D? This is the kind of intelligence system that we and others are trying to build as the next gen healthcare system. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the, beauty, the beauty of the predictive problem is that you can, you can validate it. You can test it. And so exactly. So, so if I say not only, not only. Um, this patient's going to respond or not. Um, but I say because of why, because um, they, they have a mutation in the EGFR growth factor uh, re uh, receptor, okay, uh, family or something like that. Or I, I have a mutation in, in the AKT uh, proliferative pathway, right? I can, I can one, um, you know, uh, 
index that against my personal knowledge as a physician or scientist and say, oh, I believe that. Okay, I've seen that before as well. But you can also do experiments. You can now go into a dish, uh, perhaps even of that patient's own cultured tumor cells, right? And now try directly um, knocking out that, you know, uh, interacting and, and perturbing that mutated pathway in the in the dish and see. And so that's going to be, you know, um, a nice validation of the prediction. Yeah, it's also risk management, right? So just like you mentioned before, a runaway machine learning, deep learning algorithm could create potential problems for patients. Uh, but my bias coming from the other direction, Trey, is, and I'm coming from engineering and business, and my bias is you should let the machines run because humans often <laughs> bring noise that uh, that don't add much to the problem. Yeah, in my fields, right? I mean, biology is quite different, um, especially when the stakes are so high. You need some very stringent risk management protocols. I think that is that is really what what you are talking about, right? I, I think that's one of the aspects that I'm talking about. Certainly, certainly, risk management is one of those aspects, and quality, you know, quality control and the prediction, but the ability to validate, right? Um, um, yeah, but so, then you know, but yeah. but in, but but now in terms of drug de- of of then future drug development, if I can now look, if I have the ability to look at what parts of the cell in this machine are the key parts for predicting a patient outcome or a drug response, I can now go develop drugs against those parts. Whereas if the machine can only tell me the drug works or does not, I have no insight of that nature, right? That's right. Yeah. So looking at the internals of the machine has insights for humans that humans could utilize in variety of variety of ways in the future. And so in some sense, uh, machine learning, deep learning outputs, granted it could be it could be good to use from a predictive perspective, but more strategically, I think the internals of the machines are more useful to create insights, right? I mean, that is to some extent. That's that's how how you think. I, I agree, and and so maybe there's sort of two types of machine learning applications that we're defining here, and maybe others have defined this already. So there are some applications where the machine learning system really is um, just learning some functional behavior. So I, I imagine, and this of course now is outside of my field, but in economics, you simply are trying to do forecasting of various kinds. Right. Um, and and there's no it's, it's unclear, at least what the structure there is. Let's come back to that, because then in, in biological applications, of course, um, often there is this real structure there mm. that you're modeling. And so what you're really trying to get is a structure and functional model of, of the world. And right now, the state of machine learning is it's, it's very, very heavy on the function. And and the structure somehow is optimized fully um, to learn that input-output function. But I think we're also seeing, of course, um, an interesting trend even in the functional aspects away from pure optimization of some, you know, minimization of some loss, right? And 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 pe- everyone's now encouraging us. Oh, please, community, we know that if that if if there's some competition and uh, and and some very smart 
set of people have to think of a, of a, of a way to just tweak that loss a little bit lower, they're going to do it, right? And, and does that mean they'll, they'll get a paper, but does that mean they're going to have an impact? You know, and so, so, you know, I guess my argument would, would be along those lines. Let's care, you know, yes, let's look at, let's look at this, that strict, you know, optimization problem, but let's also respect the other dimensions of, of this. Like, what is the structure that's actually, you know, what's the structural architecture and, and the descriptive architecture of the guts of that machine? Of course, of course, brain, brain science, we, we forget neuroscience yeah. it, it started neural networks originally was was doing this of course every neuron that was in the dish was modeled by by an artificial neuron in a neural network and i think eventually i think we're even seeing brain science get back to this uh where where you're modeling both a structure and a function yeah i was also thinking clay that you know the the human is still the boss so if i'm a if i'm an ai black boss my objective function would be ultimately to convince the human of the optimality of my output or my decision. So th there is sort of a, a human training aspect you know, to, the, to the AI. It's not just historical data. It is how do you convince your boss that you're actually good? You're you're taking this to a, another level. You're leveling up this discussion. I totally agree. And well, and and maybe you're getting into ad, adversarial learning, right? Is almost one way you could approach the the structural aspect as well. Yeah. So it's a mathematical question there. I mean, I don't know much about it. Right? I haven't done anything uh, in yeah. that area. But I think what you are doing here, ultimately, you're saying. All this stuff is good, but at the end of the day, you have to make the right decisions. Not only that you have to make the right decisions, but you have to be able to explain those Correct. decisions. Correct. Right? And so black box, I mean, we build a lot of black boxes in financial markets and, you know, they work for a while and then they crash and burn. Uh, that has been the history of financial markets. Uh, and that's because we can explain how the black boxes work. Uh, they work, they are regime dependent black boxes, and if regime is stable and sustaining, the black boxes work, but if they don't, they don't work. They don't generalize, right? They don't, they don't, they, they don't generalize, but in biology, you, you have an additional vector there, which is that the hardware is knowable in some sense, right? Maybe that is what brings the, the, the equation differently. Well, and in a sense, um, as, as a biologist, you care about both. Both structure and function are at the heart of, of, of nature. So, so it, you know, as natural philosophers, you know, in the, in the ancient use of that word, nature is both structure and function, and it's inherently interesting because it's nature. From a healthcare point of view, which of course is built on top of nature, but it's you know there you know maybe you could get away with just the getting the right prediction, except all of the problems you've just raised are I can assure you happen in, in healthcare. So so the the I think you mentioned switching markets for instance, and then the thing breaks. That the the equivalent in healthcare is 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 switching races, ethnicity. Yeah. Um, 
um, th these advanced biomarkers that, that, that people build using machine learning techniques do not translate. Um, and, it's, and, and what's made even worse is the National Institutes of Health historically has funded research on um, white people who are predominantly white and often predominantly male. <laughs> right. And, and so, and, you know, so does it does it translate to other other backgrounds? And many times it doesn't. And and of course, machines just learn the bias of their of their human predecessors. Right. Um, um, yeah. And then there's a historical bias. Uh, I know this trade. Um, uh, you know about this. So there was an insurance company in New York who deployed an AI agent that uh, predicted uh, African-Americans requires less care uh, <laughs> based on historic data. Uh, it's because African-Americans have less care. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, AI has uh, some uh, some difficulties, some growing, growing up difficulties, I would say. I mean, we understand these now, so we won't make stupid mistakes in the future. Uh, but we we need them, right? I mean, there's so much data out there. We are not utilizing them properly, and so anything that can churn through that data gives give us insights is really what AI is. AI is a guidance mechanism. Yeah, it's not a decision mechanism. I think that's right, and and that's where when you put it that way, that's where the ability to have a conversation about your reasons and, and explanations for your decisions is is key. Otherwise, you can't have you can't engage in a meaningful conversation. So tell me a little bit about uh, I, I was at Pfizer for a little while today on, on the business side. I'm always interested in this. So going into cancer. Um, where are we now? Uh, you mentioned we could say what drug is going to be effective. Uh, in a, for a particular person in this case, you can assign a probability that that drug is going to be effective for that person X. Correct. Um, but are we are we to a point that this can go into sort of drug discovery uh, to, to have more of a generalized population-wide optimization? That question is really on point. So, so I would argue that we're right there. At, at, at it's a very interesting time in 2022, nearly 2023 now, where where the um, the algorithms um, still face all the issues, of course, and are struggling with all the issues we've just spent the last 45 minutes discussing. But um, uh, there are the solutions are emerging, and there's uh, you know as you as you and I both appreciate, progress is occurring here. That's very rapid and very interesting. Um, so what are the so where are we in in terms of using these approaches in in healthcare? And there are a few instances where where AI ML systems are beginning to be used to match patients to drugs. For instance, um, let's talk about where they are being used. So they're being used in um, imaging. Imaging, I think, has benefited the first from yeah. AI ML and its revolution um, back to those convolutional neural networks. So everything that came out of of, of Google and ImageNet has been ported into CAT scan interpretate, you know, or, you know, reading CAT scans and MRIs. There, we could also talk for quite some time about the, the dangers that have, and, and um, um, have been seen from overfit uh, AIs that cannot explain themselves. Um, 
Um, but nonetheless, all I mean, I mean, every modern um, CAT scan or I mean, every is a strong word, but there's now many systems that incorporate AI ML um, into the hardware, actually just sitting behind the hardware for diagnosis. Um, in terms of genetics and genomics, we're just starting to see companies and systems come come online and there the real barrier uh, in addition to everything we've talked about is is data. Mm. You know, so what what are the data that we're going to use to train these systems and. Um, well, yeah, let's just talk about that for a second. So. Um, the workhorse data generation platform for drug discovery is high throughput cell screening in a dish. Yeah. Okay, you have panels of millions of cell populations or maybe just a few, but then on those you can drop millions of compounds and look at the effect. Okay, um, and so um, our systems for, for drug response prediction have been trained initially from these kinds of high throughput screens in human cell lines growing in vitro, that is to say in a dish. Um, and you can think about it from a feature perspective or from a learning perspective, I have about a thousand cell lines, each of which has been exposed, call those the row of the matrix, rows of the matrix. Each cell line has been exposed to about a thousand compounds. And those are the, the, the columns. And then um, for each of those thousand by a thousand experiments, I have a growth rate. What's the effect of the compound on the cell line? And, and for every cell line, I have many features. All the, It's got a complete genome sequence, so I know all the mutations. For the compound, I know the structure of the compound at the you know, atomic level and so on. Um, so uh, that gives you roughly a million training examples right there and I'm just scratching the surface in terms of what's available in the dish and you can do it over and over again right and you, can, over, you, do it, and you can do it over and over again and you can overfit like crazy as well <laughs> okay <laughs> so, then, so then even before machine learning came along right. um, people you know in biomedicine always uh, worry about translation and what they mean is and, and there's a whole subfield called translational medicine which is really about how do I take results I see in a dish or maybe in a mouse, and then maybe I see them in a mouse. So then, so then one one next step is towards humans is I, I stop in mice and rats. Can I can I now see my effect in in a in, you know a medium scale experiment in rodents? And if that looks good, then I go into human trials. Okay, so it's kind of think about it that way. And this process of translation we know is hard long before machine learning came along. And in fact, if anything, machine learning has some real um, uh, some wins here, you can imagine, and in, 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 in people in machine learning thinking about how you translate or transfer a model uh, across these different uh, contexts, right? Um, so, so anyway, um, um, right, so, so, so what's the limitation to, to finish your question, the, the answer to your question? We have a lot of data in cell lines, we have a little bit of data in rodents, and a microscopic amount of data in humans, okay? Um, and so the the risk of overfitting on either cell lines or mice is huge. Right. And and so a, a conversation that goes on in many cancer centers these days and pharma companies is how I can most expeditiously engage these machine learning systems to start, you know, learning and 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 getting a history of successes and failures in human patients. 
you you know you have to fail to succeed, right? And get many and then learn, of course, from 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 those data. But of course, now failures mean mean patient failures. Uh, so so that's that's kind of the catch twenty two here is is how we start to, to to engage AIs when we don't know if they're any good. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I read it in your work or, I mean, regularization in biological AI is, is to some extent is human knowledge, isn't it? I mean, human knowledge can work as a regularization filter or this AI models to make that's, them more useful, right? That's and that's this medium route forward I was referring to earlier. Don't be so strict about it. Think about it as a regularization. Right, right. Overfitting, I mean, we're going to have tremendous problems. I think we are probably 20, 30 years away from actually building an AI system in uh, in life sciences, but I think things are moving in the right direction, it looks like. I think, I, I, I don't think, I, I'm more optimistic. I think we're two to three years away from- Oh, wow, okay. Systems really start to have their first successes. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's uh, certainly ten, certainly within ten years. Excellent. So I want to finish up, Trey, with uh, something that's completely completely different. So I see here here is a better way to convert dog years to human years. Scientists say that is completely different. <laughs> yes. So so well, what is that? Very good. Um, so years ago, a decade ago, essentially. Um, I'll actually give you the, the 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 historical link to what to our our current topic of cancer, you know, uh, cancer machine learning. So, so one way to try to predict um, cancer outcomes is using the mutations in the genome. There's other uh, so-called omics layers that one can can measure. And, and another very important uh, type of information is called uh, epigenetics or uh, so what is epigenetics? Epi simply means on the gene. So epigenome is on the genome. So there are chemical marks that the same exact genetic sequence can have. So, so you know, um, if you look from cell to cell in my body, presumably it's all the same genetic sequence, okay? But the, the marks on the DNA, uh, called methylation marks, can, can vary. And this is, uh, these marks are partly what determine what cells become lungs, what cells become livers, and mm. what cells become brains, and so on. It's the patterning of, of these marks that, that instructs or is involved in the instruction of which genes are turned on and off, and then that creates different developmental uh, pathways. Um, so we were trying to use these methylation. So, so a methyl group is, 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 is just, a, it's, it's a small chemical group that gets attached primarily to the C's in the AGTC sequence. So the cytosines, um, can, can have this methyl group, uh, or not depending on tissue type, um, and depending on lots of different states. And so uh, a lot of people, including us 10 years ago, thought we could use these patterns to predict cancer. Okay, maybe if I see this certain pattern arise, now I, in your bloodstream, and, and, and now there's a whole burgeoning field called early cancer detection that actually is trying to do just this, among other things. Um, at the time, the signal um, 
for cancer was fairly weak, but um, the uh, and the reason it was weak is because there was an overriding signal that governed whether your DNA is methylated or not at a given position, and that was your age. And so what, what became, what started as a cancer machine learning project, just like we were discussing, there was this magical uh, lab meeting when the grad student, Greg uh, Hannum, who was, who was leading the project said, you know, guys, I'm gonna give up. I've been working at this for a year. Um, um, maybe there's a cancer, you know, maybe there's a cancer association somewhere with some part of the genome, but I have to test, you know, um, almost a million different uh, sites in the genome, and that's a huge multiple hypothesis testing problem. And some of them are weakly associated with the incidence of cancer, but that's kind of expected by chance. And you know, furthermore, there's just this big overriding bias. And we said, what's 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 the bias? And he says, PC1 is the age of the patient. PC1, you know, he, he says, I just can't get rid of. I, I can't regularize out the age of the patient because mm. your entire measurement, all the all the methylation marks, or many of them at least, are changing yeah. as as you age. And we said, really? Well, that's interesting. And pivoted the entire project to 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 publish what uh, was called the and is still called the epigenetic clock. So the idea that that you can you can look at this pattern of marks on your on your on any patient's genome or any individual's genome, and and like a hawker at a fairground, you can get oh you're 35 plus or minus three years, right? So once you can do that, then the question is, let's look at the people off-axis who were mispredicted. Oh well, you by your epigenome, the molecular quantitative measurement tells me you're 35, but you're actually 25. Hmm. You might want to change something about your lifestyle. You're living fast, man. <laughs> you know? Or other way around, wow, you know, you're, you, you told me you're 50 years old, but you look like you're 25. You know, what are you doing right? You know, and, and, and it turned, you know, so there was that whole angle. And now there's a number of companies, right, that you might have followed in the press based on this epigenetic measurement of age. Um, okay. But you asked about dogs. So then, the, so, so then more recently, we realized it's kind of a fun project. I had a grad student, Tina Wong, who came in and said, you know, Trey, all the stuff with, with these methylation marks, it's all very interesting. But, but, you know, what about, what about dogs? There, mm. no one, no one knows their age, actually. Um, and the reason not is because 95% or whatever, 90% of dogs in the U.S. are adopted animals, which means yeah. You, 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 you didn't breed them. So, you, so it's your best guess as, as to how old the dog actually, actually is. Um, and, and as we got into that, so she spent two years creating a dog assay for these, these marks. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and then the more we thought about it, we realized even more interesting than predicting a dog's age is recalibrating the aging curve between dogs and humans. So there's this sort of, uh, you know, old adage, you know, one year in a, in a dog's life is equal to seven years in a human's life. Mm -hmm. And it's, and the implication is you have like this just exact line. It's a linear relationship um, with a slope of one divided by seven. Yes. Um, and, and so what we did is we measured a hundred dogs uh, and uh, just used uh, the entire series of marks because the dog genome and the human genome are so similar. 
we could literally just align. It's not quite this simple, um, but it's very simple. You know, it's it's very it's it's almost a simple deal. You basically just align the genome marks. You say, for any given human, what are the nearest five dogs, and how old are they? Yeah. And vice versa for any dog, what are the nearest five humans, and how old are they? And and from that, you get a very interesting curve. And it's not one to seven. It's very very fast in the early stages of a dog's life. Yeah. Um, so, so a one-year-old dog is already aligning to more like a 30-year-old, late 20-something human. So uh, logarithmic, logarithmic. Yeah, so we fit a logarithm. I had many people, I had more than one person write me and say, Trey, sorry, logarithm is not satisfying. What you want is a power <laughs> law. It should be a power law because a log doesn't go through zero, zero. You know it has to start at zero, zero. Um, and so I, I agree. There's probably another nonlinear function that's better than we we, yeah. we fit. Um, but but anyway, I, I can tell you if 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 you want to get press for your research, publish on dogs because uh, I've never all the, all this cancer stuff, eh? You know, but uh, but but uh, I I can't tell you the number of interviews and the number. I mean, I, look, I, I'm in People magazine because of this thing. I mean, much less Smith, you know, Smithsonian, oh, Guardian, yeah. Times. You know, it's unbelievable. No, I was just thinking, Trey, uh, unrelated. I, I know that we have to wrap this up, but it's unrelated. I wondered this age question. People with dogs as pets and people without dogs as pets. Do humans without dogs age faster? Would be a pretty interesting design question, right? I mean, there might be some data. I think that might be known, and I think the answer might be yes, but don't quote me on they that. They age faster, right? They age faster. So I mean, certainly it's known. Yeah. Certainly it's known that single, I, I, single people uh, age faster than people um, in marriages. This, this is an age-old one, and again, I think that probably needs to be updated given you know society is changing. But uh, it, it sounds to me very similar to that one, right? Uh, essentially, yeah. social connection, companionship adds sort of uh, put some constraint on your aging process potentially. Yeah, maybe the question is what's better, a dog companion or a human companion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to go there, I don't think. I think you'll get a lot of messages and stuff. So excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Trey. I mean, I, I find your research really, really fascinating. Um, I think this is the only direction to go. And I think the technology is improving data is getting better. Um, I don't know about the mathematics though. What's your perspective? I mean, we are sort of stuck on mathematics from the 1960s. I I, I don't really see a lot uh, in the last 50 years. What's your perspective on that? I mean, my my perspective is I'm is is I hope some smart people will come along and correct and correct that as needed. I mean, my my philosophy is I I uh, it's not going to be me. I live at this bridge of biology and computer science, and and the idea is to use the latest stuff if we're lucky from computer science to 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 you know be the first to see the connection into leading problems in biomedicine, and then once we do that, the hope is that is that we can we can lure others maybe through a scientific sense podcast skill <laughs> and, and into thinking you know who are much smarter on on either the 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 computer science side or the biology side right uh, and you have both phenotypes there who can really engage and and really solve the problem
Yeah, I mean, most of the innovation, as you know, happens at the intersection of disciplines. I mean, you are at the intersection of two distinct disciplines. Yeah. And I mean, just some, I mean, I, I don't want to go on a tangent here very quickly. Do you do you see some implications for education? I mean, we, we you know, we put kids into this silos. They, you know, they go become an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, something. Um, that's all fine, but in the future, I think it is the intersection that matters, right? I, I agree, and I I don't know if I can weigh in because I see both sides of this one. I mean, do, do are you really proposing that we would abolish siloed departments like, uh, you know, I mean, actually computer science already is a relatively new intersected discipline. It came out of electrical engineering, and so now That's we have computer enough. science. Um, I have a colleague, Pavel Pevsner, who I think rightly argues that all of biology is basically computer science. Yes. It's right. a computational problem, yeah. yeah. It's essentially a computer. It's, it's the life side of computation. Um, does this mean we should merge these departments entirely or should we, you know, it, it, it's unclear, it, given that you have to have departmental boundaries, it's unclear what the best way of drawing those lines is um, or if one should simply abolish them altogether. Yeah, I, I'll be voting for the latter one, but then. Yeah. You know, I haven't gotten anywhere with that. So, <laughs> but then, then we're just walking around in some, you know, embedded latent space uh, of 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 types of, of 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 strengths and weaknesses we all have, and you're still going to have clusters and affinity groups. Uh, anyway, there's there's lots of of great commentary out there on on that already, and I I, I look forward to seeing what people come up with. Excellent, Ray. This has been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me and uh, have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, you you too, Gil. Thanks for the, uh, the opportunity. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.